From the book of Jude, verses 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in, the, in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have brought us here. We are your people, and we long to receive your word by the power of your spirit. So we ask for your help, your instruction, your guidance, and your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Over the course of a few years, several years now, since I've been preaching, I've used... The Beatles as an opening illustration several times. Anybody have any idea, and you don't have to answer, don't answer actually, um, what the Beatles' highest selling single was? The answer is Hey Jude. Okay? Now, one of the greatest bands of all time in my opinion, and their greatest selling single has a four minute section (laughs) that is made up of these words. Nah, 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 hate you. Four minutes. Four minutes. I guess whatever works, right? Well, I got a better way for you to invest four minutes. The book of Jude, which we're going to look at today, takes about four minutes to read. Four minutes. <clears throat> now I know that we had said we were going to be headed into Hebrews after we finished up Second Peter, and Lord willing, we'll do that next week. But I f- think we just had to take a quick one-week detour in and through the four-minute book of Jude before we did that. It's going to take us more than four minutes to get through it, by the way. There's a couple reasons why I really wanted to do this. I'd mentioned back in our journey through Second Peter that there was a whole lot of overlap and even direct repetition between Second Peter and Jude. So some of what's covered here today in this letter is going to be familiar to you from the messages in Second Peter. Things like what we'll see in verses 5 to 19 in Jude today, which we referenced in our journey through Peter's letter. <clears throat> and this overlap is so significant that there are many commentary volumes and the title of these commentary volumes is Second Peter and Jude. That's how similar they are. With the authors noting that if you're going to cover one, you might as well cover the other. So there's that. Also, the other reason um, that I wanted to foray into this letter is that I have said many times that if you really want to cover a letter, if you really want to teach a letter out of the Bible, even the longest ones, the best thing we could possibly do is read the whole letter... 
and then figure out what it's saying and seek to apply it as a whole because <clears throat> that's exactly what these churches that got these letters did. They would read the letter. They didn't take six months, eight months to get, work through second, first and second Peter. They got the letters, they read them, they talked about them. So I think this is really ideal and we can't normally do that. We don't generally get to do that. And again, as evidenced by the fact that it took us nine months to get through first and second Peter. We take our time, which is good too. But what if we could read a whole letter and like the recipients of that letter, seek to digest it as a whole? Well, hey Jude, na-na-na-na, we can do that with Jude. At 25 verses in one single chapter, we can survey it and take it as a whole. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. So we're not going to get real in-depth here. We're going, to look, we're going to do the overview. We're going to survey it, basically, breaking these 25 verses into six sections, working our way through it, and then seek to apply it after that in light of not just Jude, but also First and Second Peter. And I know I'm a geek, but I'm really stoked to get to do this, okay? So we're going to start with verses 1 and 2 because they're the first two verses in the letter. That's how it works, right? So, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2. Introduction. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. <clears throat> so, we have delineated for us here in these two short verses the author and the recipients of the letter. <clears throat> the author identifies himself as Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, of course, those receiving this letter would know who that was. They're like, oh, that's from Jude. But we have to dig a little bit to really know who this is. It's, it's very common in New Testament epistles, which letters, in well, they're called epistles, epistles. Uh, it's very common in New Testament epistles for people to call themselves servants of Jesus Christ. Paul does it. Peter does it. So that doesn't really help us to identify Jude. I mean, that could literally be anybody. But him saying that he's the brother of James, well, that helps us narrow things down quite a bit. James in the New Testament <clears throat> was a pillar. Like a, a round, holds things up, pillar. James was a pillar, a leader in the first church. And that church that was born in Jerusalem at Pentecost, James was a very prominent man in this church. He was a leader. When Peter was miraculously released from jail by an angel in the book of Acts, he showed up, Peter did, at a house where many were gathered. And he says in Acts 12, verses 1 to 17, let me get there, i got to scroll, 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 scroll. This is what Peter says. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, and we're, again, we're trying to figure out who James is, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So I bring this up because it shows the prominence of James in the early church. Peter wanted James and the other brothers to know that he had been released from prison. So James was a preeminent leader in that early church. But he also had another role or title. In recounting the resurrection events in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Then he, talking about Jesus after he was resurrected, appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So why did Jesus do this? Why did he appear to this man James? Well... In Matthew and Mark, there's another list of guys that James is in. I'm going to use Matthew 13, uh, 
55 here. Let's go to 55. These are people talking about Jesus. And they say, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So this James was Jesus' brother. Half-brother technically. As Mary and Joseph were James' parents and Joseph had had no part in Jesus' conception. Okay? And it says that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him during his earthly ministry. And so Jesus shows up to James after his resurrection to say, Hey, you believe me now, basically? And if you look at this list here, there's another name. A guy named Judas. Not Iscariot, obviously, but Judas. Who also would have been called, what? Hey Jude. Right? And why wouldn't he want to use the name Judas, by the way? After, yeah, well, you can probably guess. So Jude, the brother of James. And if James is the half-brother of Jesus, what does that make Jude? It makes Jude the half-brother of Jesus as well. So that's the author of this letter that we're about to read. And it's interesting how he refers to himself, right? He knows his role. First and foremost, he's a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now he could have said brother of Jesus too, right? But he knows his role. He's not name dropping in order to elevate himself. Instead, he gives us an example of how we all should see ourselves if Jesus is our Savior. We, like Jude, are servants of Jesus Christ. Now, to the recipients. Who are they? Well, we don't know. We don't have any identification here as to who these recipients are. Um, We don't have any geographical indicators like the letters to Ephesus or Corinth or anything like that. Instead, we see only that they are those, this is written to those, and I love this, who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Talk about an identification. Sign me up for that. Put that on my driver's license, right? That's who these people are. And again, so it's just a bunch of believers. Their identification is who they are from God's perspective and what God is doing in and through their lives. They are those who are called. They're those who are beloved. They are those who are kept. And all those are past tense verbs, by the way. Right? These are actions that happen to them. All passive verbs showing that they are recipients of God's actions to and for them. He called them. They are beloved in God the Father. They are kept for Jesus Christ. And that is who they are. And who we are if we're God's people. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. And then Jude asks these people, asks that these beloved, uh, called beloved and kept folk would have mercy, peace, and love multiply to them, which is a lovely prayer for them and us. So, next section, which is verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Okay, so here we move from introduction to purpose. 
Okay, so Jude started, sat down to write a letter. He had a purpose in mind, but then it, he changed his mind as he was writing. Beloved, he says, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So he sat down, he's going to write them and rejoice in what God's done to save them, how God saved them, how we're all God's people, yay, we're saved, God's done great things for us. Just talking about how great it is to be adopted into God's family. That'd be wonderful, that'd be a great letter to get, right? Well, turns out, that didn't turn out. Instead, he says he found it necessary to do something else. And what he said was he found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now what's this about? And it's important that we get this because this is the whole purpose. This is the whole reason for the letter. So he won't be talking about their common salvation. He's going, he found it necessary to write something else. Instead, he says it's necessary. He has to write to appeal to them. He needs to write to them to make an appeal, an exhortation, a plea. About what? The plea that is necessary for him to write is for them to, quote, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That word contend was mentioned in 2 Peter. It's the word epagonizomahi. You're welcome. And it's got a word, a part of the word in there is agonizzi, agonize. So the word contains the word that we get our word agony out of. To contend, to agonize, it means to fight for. He's appealing to them to fight, to contend for what? For the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He needs them. He's urging them to fight and contend for the faith. Fight for the faith. And everybody's getting their dander up. They're like, come on. Yeah, let's fight. The faith. Fight for the faith. Yes, let's fight for the faith. What's the faith? Alistair Begg defines it as, quote, the objective body of truth that is unchanged and unchanging that has been expressed and settled once for all and entrusted to these believers. Amen. To that I say, yes. Contend for that. Why? For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, that should feel very familiar from what we went through in Second Peter. So this is so much of what Peter was saying. There are people in the church... People who have crept in unnoticed. That is saying that these people are wolves who have snuck into the sheepfold and nobody has paid attention to them. These people, these wolves, are described as those, quote, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. We talked about that in, in 2 Peter. We're not going to cover that again. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of God, of our God, into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So the point is they're not good. These are not saved people. It's the folks that Peter said the same thing about who are doing what they're doing in the church out of sensuality for what feels good for them. They even, which Peter said as well, deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. These people are sensual. They pervert grace and they deny Jesus. Again, they are unsaved people worming their way in to please themselves, to feed themselves on the sheep. And what they're doing is leading the sheep astray. So, Jude says, fight! 
contend. Now what's that mean? We'll get to that in a minute. And I think you're going to be surprised. I surely was. Fight for the faith in light of these deceivers. Now, about these deceivers, I'm going to read verses 5 to 16. This describes these deceivers and people like them. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch... The seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Woof. So now this is a big chunk to consider together, but we've already covered so much of this in Peter's letter. So we're not going to deep dive into this. We don't get into a lot of specifics here. What I want to do is take the overall flow and pull out what we need to see from this giant section of this letter. The point in this section of the letter is Jude giving examples of how God has dealt with people who have opposed His will in the past. Unbelieving Israelites who were not believers in God. Angels who violated God's boundaries. Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain, Balaam, Korah, and even all the way back to the time of Enoch, just seven generations from Adam and the ungodly at that time. The point is this. Listen, this is incredibly important. The point is this. For all time, as long as there has been ungodliness, God has judged the ungodly with fierce and awesome judgment. Always has. So, these people in Jude's time and in our time who have infiltrated the ranks of God's people who are here described as hidden reefs at your love feast, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, fruitless, twice dead, uprooted trees, wild waves of the sea and wandering stars, these people, listen, will suffer the fearsome wrath of God for who they are and for what they are doing. That's going to happen. Jude, even quoting a prophecy from Enoch, from a book or letter that's not in our Bibles, but is seen by Jude as relevant to this conversation, says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands 
of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. This is the way of God. This is how He operates for all time. The ungodly do not escape the just punishment that they deserve for wrongs done against God and His people. They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain an advantage. They're easy to spot. They're really obvious when you stop and look for just a little bit, which is why Jude's pointing them out. And listen, God has always and will always ensure that they are rightly judged for what they are and do. Okay, so what? Remember... This letter is to believers. Why is Jude saying all of this about these wolves to them? Well, he just called on them to contend and to fight for the faith. Right? Well, who or what are they fighting? A knee-jerk reaction would be that they're fighting these unrighteous people who are doing unrighteous things in the midst of God's people. And in one way they are. We'll talk about that more in a bit. But listen, the purpose of this whole big section that we just read is not to call on these believers to strive to execute judgment on these unbelievers. Instead, the purpose of this section of the letter is to build these believers' confidence in God's consistency throughout history to see, know, and do something about this very thing. This battle with these unrighteous people truly, really is the Lord's battle. Recognize that these people have crept in unaware. Know who they are and sure, call them out and speak truth to them, but trust that ultimately it's God who's going to deal with them as they should be dealt with. Just as He has angels, people, cities, and false prophets in the past. And I think that is so very important in understanding this letter... Because this is what I've heard so many times with Jude and people expositing Jude. They're talking about how to contend for their faith, how to contend for the faith, and what they are saying is, we've got to expose these people. We've got to just get, make sure that these people feel the full vent of our righteous anger and that they are who we are contending against. But Jude is saying here, God's going to deal with them. He always has, and He always will. So when I say to contend for the faith, I'm not saying pick fights with unbelievers. Sinners going to sin. And it's not your job to judge them or to condemn them or to vent your wrath, vent your spleen, even on Facebook to them. That's not contending for the faith. Contending for the faith starts with knowing that God's going to handle these jokers. So we start there. The battle is the Lord's. How are we to handle these unrighteous in our midst and contend for the faith in our day and time? The next two sections address that directly, starting with verses 17 to 19. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. 
This takes us back to what we saw and said in the pastoral epistles of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Paul repeatedly said to those young pastors that hard times and bad people are going to come along in their ministries. These people are going to come along in the churches they served in. It was not a matter of if it was going to happen or even when because it was already going on then. The issue is how they were going to handle it. And so here, Jude calls on his readers, who by the way, show no indication of being church leaders. They're just church folk. They're simply referred to as the people who are called, beloved, and kept. Meaning they're just believers. And how are these believers to handle the information that unbelievers and false teachers had crept into their midst? Well, as is so often the case, they are to remember what their Bibles have already told them. But you must remember, beloved, and we're familiar with that word beloved, right? You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that. These believers are already prepared for this. The apostolic teaching, the words of Paul, Peter, John, and the others, has already made provisions for this. They predicted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this was going to happen. They said to you, Jude says, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Anybody familiar with that quote? It's from 2 Peter. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the, of the Lord, and Savior, Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, Peter says in 2 Peter that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. This helps explain a lot of the overlap and repetition in Jude from 2 Peter. It would seem that Jude had either read Peter's letter or had heard him speak and preach enough to know what Peter had said. If Jude had turned in this essay, this letter, today in school, he would have failed because they would have said, you plagiarized this. Well, I say may we all be guilty of plagiarizing the apostolic teaching. Amen. I don't need to add anything to it. I don't need anything original. Give me the apostolic teaching. But anyway, Jude is quoting Peter and reminding the recipients of this letter that they know all of this is going to happen. You must remember these predictions, Jude says. You've already been told that these people were going to come. They're going to be here. Jesus had said it in the parables in Matthew 13. Wheat and tares, good soil, bad soil, fish of every kind gathered in a net and sorted out at the end of all things. Listen, sorted out at the end of all things by the righteous judge. In the parable, the, the field workers asked the, the master, should we uproot these weeds? And what did the master say? No, don't do that. Because if you do that, you could damage the wheat. Let them grow together. And when everything's gathered in, we'll separate the good from the bad. Not your job to separate the weeds and the tares. The wheat and the tares. That'll happen at the end of all things. And that's what Jude is saying here. You know this. You've heard this. These readers and we are not to be surprised at what's going on as if some strange thing has come upon us. It is these people who are bound to come, really guaranteed to come, who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And they always have been and they always will be around. Listen, in the church, sometimes even leading the church, Dividing God's people, stirring up strife and contention, but they're worldly people using worldly means to further their own ideas and sell their books full of worldly wisdom. And Jude and Peter say they're devoid of the Spirit. Listen, these people are not born again. They're not sheep. They are wolves. 
They do not have the Holy Spirit in their lives. No power, no holiness, not promoting the faith, but speaking about ethereal, (laughs) generic, vanilla faiths. People of faith. Not the faith, just faith or faiths, plural. That's going on in churches today. That's what they're talking about. And what they're trying to do is to help people feel better about them and themselves. Feel good about my teaching. Feel good about yourselves. You should feel good about yourself. You must remember, church, you have been told. So then, okay, what are we supposed to do? We said earlier that long section was about reassuring the readers that God would take care of these scoffers, of these false teachers. Well, our next section gives us our marching orders. Our playbook on what it looks like to contend for the faith. And it was incredibly surprising to me. I've read this book, I would guess hundreds of times, literally, the book of Jude. And this was surprising to me. 20 to 23. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh." Now, if I had told you at the beginning of this message when I said to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith, and then said, this is how you do it, would you have been surprised? We think contend, we think fight. Again, we're thinking public forum. We're thinking calling out and calling names and and proving my point and shaking our fists and, and calling people down. And we don't see any of that here, do we? Contend for the faith. Leave the ungodly to God. He'll handle that. Don't be surprised that there are ungodly in your midst. And now, this is how you contend. Not how I would expect to be instructed on how to contend, how to fight. I would think that long section that told the bad things the bad people had done would be instructing us to beat those jokers down. Expose them. Embarrass them. Call them out. Shout them down. But it didn't. It said God has always handled this type of issue and these type of people. And then Jude called on us to remember that we've been warned that it was always true and always will be true. And so now here he says, but you. In direct contrast to the ungodly, but you, beloved, don't concern yourself with passing judgment on or tearing these people down, God's going to handle them. Trust that. That's first. Trust that God's going to handle the ungodly. But you, you do what? Well, there's eight instructions in these four verses that make up how we are to handle the presence of scoffers and mockers and false teachers in the church. And here's the list of instructions. I'm going to put up my fingers so you can see. One, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Two, Pray in the Holy Spirit. Three, keep yourselves in the love of God. Four, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Five, have mercy on those who doubt. Six, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Seven, show mercy with fear. And eight, hate even the garments stained by the flesh. 
Now that is very, very interesting to me. This is what it means to fight. To contend. And we'll skate through them really quick to get a feel for what this contending is supposed to look like in our lives. First, first, if you're going to contend for the faith, if you're going to fight for the faith, first, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Now notice the plural there, yourselves. This is for the church, the believers. How do you think we are to do that? How are we to build ourselves up in our most holy faith? Well, building up infers that there's what? There's growth. There's increase. We talked about this in 2 Peter as well. You should be growing and knowing and showing. Remember that? In height and depth and breadth and length in your knowledge and application of what the faith is all about. So we are to build ourselves up in community with each other in our most holy faith. We have to know who God is. We have to know what God has done and how that affects us. Which means what? Oh, for goodness sake, know and love your Bible, church. Know who God is by His revelation of Himself. We're not looking for fresh new revelation. He gave us a book. So we can know Him and His commands. Build yourselves up in that. You're telling me I've got to study my Bible. Yes, exactly. Which is why we do what we do here on Sunday mornings. But it's not enough to just come and get this. You need to be doing it yourselves. You need to be doing it in your families. You need to be doing it in your spare time. If there was a book that told you about God, would you want to read it? hope so. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. That faith is revealed in the Scriptures. So we are to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. We have to know who God is, what God has done, and how that affects us. Know who God is by His revelation of Himself. Read the book. Build yourselves up in that. And then Jude says to pray in the Holy Spirit. Oh, we're getting weird now. Oh, I don't know about praying in the Spirit stuff. Goodness gracious, pour us. Because that has been interpreted out of proportion. Stretched to mean and say something it does not say. I think we all know what prayer is. Prayer is talking to God. Letting your requests be made known with thanksgiving, Paul would say. But what does it mean to pray, uh uh-oh, in the Holy Spirit? That's, ooh, yeah. Thomas Schreiner speaks clearly here. Quote, The second means by which believers can remain in God's love is by praying, quote, in the Holy Spirit. Some commentators think this describes speaking in tongues, but this is doubtful. More likely, the prayer in the Spirit is the ordinary prayer that should be part of the warp and the woof of the Christian life. A striking parallel is found in Ephesians 6.18, Shriner says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. The context in Ephesians clarifies what speaking in tongues, that speaking in tongues is not primarily in view. Requests for the furtherance of God's will and resistance to the devil's attack are the focus. Similarly, 
Schreiner says, in Jude, the injunction to pray should be understood broadly. Believers cannot keep themselves in God's love without depending on Him by petitioning Him in prayer. Love for God cannot be sustained without a relationship with Him, and such a relationship is nurtured by prayer. End of quote. Nothing weird or ethereal about praying in the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans that sometimes we don't even know how to pray as we ought to pray. So what does the Spirit do? He intercedes for us. That's praying in the Holy Spirit too. He doesn't say He intercedes for us and we have groanings too deep for words or that we have ecstatic utterances. He says we don't even know what to pray. And sometimes the best prayer you can pray is Holy Spirit, pray for me because I don't even know what I need right now. That's praying in the Holy Spirit too. So, Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit. The next statement is, keep yourselves in the love of God. This is actually grammatically the command. That the first two, build yourselves up and pray, are modifying. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. By doing these things, you keep yourselves in the love of God. By building up and praying, we are keeping ourselves in the love of God. Now, does that mean we are experience God's love? experiencing God's love? Or that we're loving Him? And the answer is, yes. Okay? It means both. Right? Keep knowing and keep experiencing His love for you. And in that, also keep loving Him. Keep yourselves in the love of God, receiving love from Him and showing Him love. And so, then what we see in 1 John 4.19 is true. We love... Because He first loved us. So keeping ourselves in the love of God turns into receiving His love and responding to that love with love. So keep yourselves in that. And then Jude turns to encouraging his readers to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're talking about what does it mean to contend? Here, he's not implying that we haven't already received mercy, but he is saying that ultimately what we long for in our pitiable state is a full final deliverance from sin, death, disease, and ourselves. And that is coming. So wait for it. Don't lose heart. God has saved, God is saving, and God will save us. Wait for the mercy that Jesus is bringing with Him when He comes. Uh, Luke read it this morning. I said it again in in our uh, time of... Music, Peter had said to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, we have received grace and mercy and we will receive a greater grace and mercy at the culmination of all things. And so, in contending for the faith, wait for that. Don't give up. Wait for it. Next, Jude turns his attention from us and ours to others. Now watch this. He says to have mercy... On those who doubt. Contending for the faith, fighting for the faith, have mercy on those who doubt. Hmm. Now, who's he talking about here? In trying to cipher this out, I came to the conclusion that in light of these scoffers and these false teachers, some in the church, some believers had started doubting. Anybody ever doubt? Anybody ever doubt the Scripture? Anybody ever doubt? Did God really say? Anybody have questions about the Bible and that don't really make sense to me? 
You ever received any bad teaching and went, oh wow, what if that's true? I have. I still wrestle with a lot. Still struggle with a lot. So how should we respond to people who doubt? Well, Jude says in contending for the faith, we're to have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. So we know what it means to doubt. You've got questions, you're confused, you're just not sure about things. So how should we as believers show mercy to people in this state? Well, mercy is defined, listen, as giving aid or kindness to someone who is afflicted. That's how we do it. We don't browbeat them and tell them why they're wrong to doubt. Roll our eyes at them. I can't believe you would doubt. Instead, we love them and encourage them and try to answer their questions and calm their fears. Listen, we sit with them in their doubt. We don't push them out because of it. And I would say this especially to parents who have kids who are questioning, doubting, wondering. Don't beat them up and tell them they're wrong and bad to doubt. Sit with them in it. Struggle with them in it. Help answer their question or point them to people who can answer their questions. Don't beat them up. Ground them. Send them to their room. No more movies for you because obviously these things are messing you up. Sit with them in it. Wrestle with them in it. That's what it means to show mercy to the doubting. Then Jude says we are to save others by snatching them out of the fire. So the picture of fire is one of judgment. But be clear, this is not a call to us to do anything to save people in a spiritual sense. Only God can save people that way. But we are to warn people of the coming judgment on sin and sinners and we are to plead with them to escape that judgment by placing their faith in Christ. So by preaching the gospel and calling people to repentance and faith in Christ, we are the tools. Still don't appreciate being called a tool, by the way. (laughs) By preaching the gospel, we are the tools in the Master's hand used to literally snatch people from that fire of judgment. The gospel is how we snatch people from the fire of judgment. Jude then says, to others, show mercy with fear. Now what's that mean? And how or why is this different than showing mercy on those who doubt? Now the commentaries are all over the place on this, but I think it's following a progression. These people who are being shown mercy with fear, listen, they're too far gone. They're lost people. And what is our attitude to them? What is our attitude toward lost people? Mercy. Not hatred, not disgust, not you deserve the hell that you're going to get. May we never be those people. Mercy. Contending for the faith means that we show mercy with fear. And I I do believe it means to unbelievers specifically. We show them mercy. We don't desire evil for them, even though we know that judgment is coming for them if they don't repent. We show them mercy, but fearing their ultimate destination. I also think it's a fear of becoming entangled in what they're entangled in too. And that makes even more sense when you take the last part, which says we are to show mercy with fear. Listen, hating even the person... Hating even the garment. 
stained by the flesh. Garments stained by the flesh implies that sin is the blot on these people's lives. And unless sins are forgiven, unless those sins are removed, the ultimate destination for us all is hell. And we are to hate sin. Listen, we are to hate sin to the point of even hating the garment stained by it. We show mercy to the vilest sinner knowing we all have the same capabilities in ourselves. But we do absolutely hate the sin that stains them and would still stain us had it not been taken away by the effectual blood of Jesus. This, folks, is how we contend for the faith. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I'm going to read that Short passage again, then we'll get into the next one. This is how we contend. This is how we fight. We are to be building ourselves up in our most holy faith. We contend by praying in the Holy Spirit. We contend by keeping ourselves in the love of God. We contend by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We contend by showing mercy on those who doubt. We contend by saving others by snatching them out of the fire. We contend by showing mercy to others with fear. And we contend by hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That's really, really good. And now our last section, which is a familiar benediction for us, because we use it quite a bit from the pen of Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verses 24 and 25. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. No, no, you're not. (laughs) Stay neat with us. So this is either my first or second favorite benediction in the Bible. The one in 1 Thessalonians 5 that says he, he causes faithful, he will surely do it. Is these, they're probably neck and neck, but I digress. It doesn't matter. This one is just beautiful. After covering all he covered in this brief letter, Jude speaks this beautiful word of praise and promise over his readers. Now I want to take it apart and kind of put it out of order so we can uh, see a little clearer what's connecting what thoughts to what and what's separated by what words here. So Jude says now to him. To start. Then, the beginning of verse 25 says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's piece those two phrases together. So we see the full picture of the hymn that is being referenced. Now to Him, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what a wonderful explanation and appellation, not appellation, because that's not how you say that word. Appellation means giving a name to something. What a wonderful explanation and appellation for our God. He's the only God. He's the only God. He's our Savior. He saved us through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is our Lord. Now back to verse 24 where this God is said to be able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Now that's pretty good, y'all. This God, our Savior, and our Lord is able. 
Now we could just stop there with saying God's able and be pretty content, right? But we won't. Because God is able to keep you from stumbling. Now we associate stumbling with sinning, but this doesn't mean that He will keep you from sinning. That's not what this means. It means He's able to keep you from falling away. He's able to keep you from falling away from Him. He's able to keep you from falling away from Him. And in so doing, He is able, God is able to present you blameless before the presence of His glory. One day, Christian, called, beloved, and kept of God and by God, one day you will be presented as a present in the presence of the glory of God and that presentation will be that you are Here's Jason. He's blameless. Father, here's your son Jason. And God says, he's blameless. And I'm going, am I? He's like, yes, you are because I was able to present you as blameless before me. He is able to do that. Oh man, He's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory. We won't be like Isaiah who said, Woe is me, for I'm undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord, the Maker, the Creator, the Holy, Holy, Holy One. That won't be us. We'll be standing there going, Praise be to the glorious grace of God for presenting me blameless before the presence of His glory. Listen, He is able to do that. Oh man. With great joy. Who has great joy, us or Him? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. God is Greatly joyous. We're greatly joyous. And there's a lot of joy going around in heaven because we've been presented before the very holy glory of God as blameless. And everybody has great joy. Us and Him. Us and our God is joyous because He did it. Not because you tried harder to do better, but because He did it. He is able to do it. And He's able to do it with great joy as we stand in His presence, holy and blameless because of what He did. He gets all the glory for it before the presence of His glory with great joy. With great joy. So to Him, to Him, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Since He is God, since He is able, since He will keep us from stumbling, from falling away, since He will make us blamelessly blamelessly stand in His presence with great joy, then to Him be glory. He gets all the glory for it. Majesty, 
That word means the quality of a person or thing which inspires awe or reverence in the beholder. Majesty. There's my king, and he is awesome, and I revere him. All majesty goes to him. Yes, give God all that too. Dominion. Peter used that word a few times. It means controlling power. God has all of that. God has all of the controlling power. That's all His. And authority. Jesus said it was all His in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So yes, we ascribe that to Him too. Before all time and now and forever. Past, present, and future. Eternity past into eternity future. It was, is, and will be all God's. All the glory, all the majesty, all the dominion, and all authority. Always has been, always will be. So give it to Him now. Ascribe that to Him in your mind, in your heart, in your hands, in your life. Rejoice in it now. Fight for it now, Jude says, as he ends his potent little letter. And then he closes it with, so be it. Yes, yea, verily, amen. So let's turn to application. We've got three C's. Thank you for your patience. Consign, contend, control. Consign, contend, control. So first is consign. C-O-N-S-I-G-N. To consign means to deliver over to someone else. So our application here is that we need to consign the fate of the wicked to God. That's His. That's His stuff. It never was ours to begin with. So when we take it into our possession or try to, we have to say, well, this is God's. If somebody came up and grabbed my guitar before they left, thinking, oh, I've got to get my guitar, and they're like, oh, this is not mine. This is Jason's. They should give it back to me. You should give it back to me. Even though it does have a broken string. We need to consign the fate of the wicked to God. He handles judging and meeting out justice on the ungodly. He'll handle it. Let him. He has never not dealt with those who defy him, and he will never not deal with them. Which is a difficult way of saying he always has and he always will. Listen, church, don't let the presence of scoffers or false teachers or evil upset your faith. Also, don't let the presence of scoffers or false teachers or evil make you want to mete out your judgment or your justice or your view of justice into your hands. It's not your job. God's hands are more capable. He is faithful and just. Don't let the presence of these people in your life or in the life of the church unnerve you or adversely affect your faith. How many times have you heard it? I don't go to church because there's too many hypocrites. Well, no, please come to church knowing that there will be hypocrites and God's going to judge them. You don't have to worry about that. Worry about yourself. Don't let their false teaching or their arrogant denying bleed over into your life or belief system. And also, you'll remember, we're not just to not judge them. We are not just to not hate them. We're to labor for them. We're to show mercy to them. We are to snatch them out of the fire. We are to seek their salvation. Not condemn them to hell ourselves as if we could do that anyway. 
Consign them to God. And your part with them is to contend for them, which is the next application point. Contend. (laughs) Ultimately, if I had to describe what contending here means, contending for the faith means being a Christian. That's what it means. You do the things Christians do. You live the way Christians live. And you don't poke at other people. You don't point at other people. You, in the power of the Holy Spirit, do exactly what Jude has called us to do here. And again, I'll reiterate those eight points. You're like, hey, yeah. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Show mercy with fear and hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Live in contrast to the culture around you. Don't be like them. But don't hate them either. Live differently. Confess and proclaim the authority of God in the Scriptures. You don't really believe that, do you? I absolutely do believe that. And unless you repent, you will suffer the judgment of God upon your life. Well, that's rude. No, I'm saying that because I love you. And I'm trying to show mercy to you. Because the fire of God's judgment is coming upon you. And since I love you, I'm going to yell for you to get out of the road. The car's coming. And you're going to get hit. Please, get out of the road. God is coming to execute judgment on sinners and the sins that they have committed. Please flee from the wrath to come. What, am I supposed to live like you? Hopefully I'm an example to you. Yes. By the grace of God, to the glory of God, hopefully my life is adversely and and, and just completely perpendicular to what the culture is saying and doing. That's how I contend for the faith. Once for all, delivered to the saints. Scoffers reject the tradition. We remember what we were told. Scoffers create division, tearing down the group. We build ourselves up in unity of the faith. Scoffers go the way of their godless desires. We conduct ourselves in sacred faithfulness. They are physical. We hate even the garment stained by the flesh. They have no spirit, devoid of the spirit. We pray in the Holy Spirit. They are proscribed for judgment and we are awaiting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you contend. Consign, contend, and finally control. God is in full control. Perfect, omnipotent, omniscient control of all of history. That includes the ungodly. And praise God, that also includes the path of every believer from start to finish. We saw two things, two statements, two clauses in this letter that we're going to finish with that shows that what it means for God to be in perfect control of our lives. At the beginning, Jude says we are called, beloved, and kept. Amen. Alistair Begg remembers that by Central Bank of Kenya. If that helps you, I don't know. <laughs> called, beloved, and kept. 
called. Who called us? God called us. When did He call us? In eternity past. We're beloved. God has placed His love on us in eternity past. He's in perfect control of that. And we are kept for Jesus Christ. Who's doing that? God's doing that. He's in perfect control of your life, Christian. Then at the end, He's able to keep us from stumbling. He is able to present us blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. God is in full control of that. You cannot out the grace of God. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. When you fear that when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. But he keeps us from stumbling, keeps us from falling away, and he is able, he is able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He is able. And He is in perfect control of the ungodly and of His people. And in that we rejoice and say, Come Lord Jesus and until You do, help us consign the ungodly to You, contend for the faith, and rest in Your perfect control. That's what Jude has to say to us. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this little letter. Thank You so much, God, that we don't have to try to avenge ourselves against the ungodly. God, vengeance is Yours. Leave room for the wrath of God, Paul said in Romans. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So help us to leave them to You. God, help us to be faithful with what You've given us to contend for the faith. Help us to live like Christians. And God, may we rest in Your firm control and give you the glory that belongs only to you. And if there be anybody that has not done that, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, awaken them to their need for forgiveness. Show them the efficacy of the life and blood and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus to remove their sins away from them as far as the east is from the west. May they confess their sins and trust Jesus as their Savior, knowing that you will keep them and present them blameless for the presence of your glory with great joy. God help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Y'all might know this one. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever and all God's people said. Amen. You are dismissed and stay in with us if you can.